Well, it's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, we have uh, about a half hour. We're going to be eating lunch together. We have our heart to heart. But uh, today, this morning, I'm going to go ahead and really share a message, message that goes along with it. I mean, the heart to heart really began with worship this morning, and it'll continue on through lunch and a few things, a few more things, specific things I want to share. Uh, but this morning, <coughs> I want to take us down a little bit of stroll down memory lane. If you talk to sociologists or psychologists, they'll tell you that if you were to classify the last 100, 150 years, you would really best classify it as the age of revolution. It began in the late 19th, really at the turn of the 20th century, where we had what was called the Industrial Revolution. Anybody heard that term? The Industrial Revolution, where all of a sudden we began to make stuff in huge quantities. And it revolutionized human beings because all of a sudden a whole bunch of stuff was available to us that wasn't available to us before. Uh, the advancement of modern financial systems and factories and, and, and really it left us with a sense of money, stuff, bigger, better, and modern. Some temptations that we never really had. Uh, as human beings, the industrial revelation had really brought in the temptation and the vice of materialism like we never had. But soon on the heels of the industrial revolution came what sociologists call the cultural revolution. Now, when you think of cultural revolution, you might think of art or music or things like that. But the primary thing to affect culture all over the globe has been the rise and advent of non-theistic evolution, right? If you look at the court cases in the early and mid-20th century, so many of them rested on where God's place was in society. Now that we have this thing called the theory of evolution and we have secular explanations for the origins of humanity. And so there was a real cultural revolution, and pretty soon the notion of God was slowly going, 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 gone as a main force in our cultural society. After that, we have, of course, uh, in the late 60s and the advent of the 70s and 80s, the sexual revolution with the advent of birth control pills and legalized abortion we began to see that on the heels of both the industrial and cultural revolution, it leads to a lifting of the taboos on non-marital or premarital or post-extramarital uh, sex. And so we have the sexual revolution. But perhaps probably the most powerful revolution is the final one I'm going to share with you. And that's because this one kind of connects the previous three and disseminates it in the most powerful way human beings have ever had. And that is the digital revolution. Things such as the internet, powerful personal computers, social media has made such a profound impact on society that we are still beginning to understand how it has drastically changed our way of life. I joke with my wife and say, we no longer have teenagers, we have screenagers. Uh, because, I mean, they're at school and they're learning from screens. They're uh, doing their homework in front of screens. They, the advent of video games, all these screens, you know, so it's a screen generation. And yet, through all of these revolutions, I submit to you, we're not happier. We're definitely not safer. 
Who here feels safer today? Uh, don't even answer that because I know you don't. Uh, in fact, we're more confused and depressed than we have ever been. And statistics bear that out year after year after year. Now, on the one hand, technology can be great. Uh, last Christmas, I used this program called FaceTime. And I was able to FaceTime my family in Michigan. And, you know, and, and, and sticking my head in front of the screen, you almost feel like you're in the room with them. I had a bunch of family members checking in. How you doing? I got to see them. I got, you know, they showed me the dinner. That's big in the Midwest. You know, you, you show the dinner and the desserts, you know. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they're walking around with this laptop, you know. And, and I almost felt like in some weird way I was there with them. That's a great example of some of the, the benefits of technology. And yet, on the other hand, social media giants like Facebook and Instagram are now accused of being the third leading indirect cause of suicide amongst teenagers in America. In fact, that is one of the reasons why they're so hesitant for Facebook to release their kids and teen version because they want to do some studies to see how it's really affecting them. The other month, Tanya and I saw something. We were in, uh, could have been the other year. I, I just remember this. We were in Morro Bay at one of the uh, stores, one of the markets. And uh, she went in to get something, and I saw something I hadn't seen in so long. I saw a phone booth. Everybody remember phone booths? When's the last time you used a phone booth? I mean, it's been 20 years at least, right, for, for, <laughs> for most of us. I mean, it's been so long, I can't even remember the last time I saw one. So I thought it would be really cool to call Tanya on a, on a payphone, you know? So I'm like, I go to the get change because, you know, it used to be a dime and then it was a quarter. Then it was two quarter. You know, it was just kept going up, it seemed like, every year. So I got all this change. I'm ready to go and I, and I walk up to it and I, there's a phone booth there. There's a phone in there and I, no dial tone. No dial tone. And, and I, I was so bummed because I thought that'd be, that'd be so cool. But the phone booth didn't, the phone booth didn't work anymore. Why? Because it's an outdated technology that heralds the limitations of an earlier time in history. And I submit to you, I wonder if that's how a lot of people look at Christianity today. Much like we might look like a phone booth. Oh, Christianity was good for then. You know, when we were in our tribes in Europe or Africa or Asia, you know, Christianity kind of held us together. It was necessary back then but we've outgrown it, like a phone booth. Phone booths were necessary back then, but we, we've outgrown that now. It's no longer necessary. In fact, that's sometimes one of the biggest feelings I get with people as I either share my faith, talk about faith, or talk about my role here at the church. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. I just don't really feel like it's a necessary thing in life. But, hey, for all you people who come, get some out of it. Good for you. And yet, I know we know the truth. Christianity is absolutely necessary for the world. We as Christians are called to bring hope, to bring love, to bring a, a lack of fear into situations, to bring a faith that says, yes, on every earthly and natural means, this may all fall apart, but we, we serve a God who's a God of the miraculous, the God where you never know what's going to happen. So let's get on our knees and pray and see what happens. Amen? I am 
this morning calling for another revolution. Did you ever realize I'd be such a revolutionary? Right? No. Many of you are like, Tom's not even really political. How could he be revolutionary? You know? No, no, no. I am calling for a revolution this morning. But what I'm calling for is a salt and light revolution. That we, as people who follow Jesus, would usher in a salt and light revolution like we've never seen. You may be confused as to what I mean about that, but essentially our example of our following Christ in the world, that our example would become such a powerful influence. Because see, I think, I kind of wonder, has the church lost its influence because we are no longer salt and light to the world? The world looks at us statistically and morally and they see very little difference and so they conclude there's nothing really different in the church and there's no power there. When we neglect what God has called us to be, the world ignores us at best, ridicules us at worst. And I feel in some ways the church has become too easy to be ignored. But the flip side is also true. When Christians decide to be salt and light, oh, the world pays close attention because deep down, they want the hope of Christ. They want the church to work. They want Christ to work. They want a God that they can pray to that may not take them out of every storm, but will join them in the storm. When we are salt and light, the world listens to us. When we aren't, they don't. Jesus describes what this looks like in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You'll see these verses up on the screen. He says, you, he's speaking of his followers, you are the salt and light of, salt of the earth. But if a salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gets light, gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and give glory to God, to, to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's break this down real quick. Let's focus on the salt first. How many of you love salt? Oh, I love salt. Particularly, I love it on a hot pretzel at a baseball game. You know, there's nothing like salt on a pretzel at a baseball game. Salt has had five primary uses in ancient times, and, and these uses could still be done today. We just have other alternatives, but five primary uses. The first one is this, salt seasons. It seasons food. There's nothing like tasting something bland and getting that salt shaker. Oh, yeah. This is what I'm going for, all right? Almost everything we eat has salt in it. Did you know cake has salt in it? Mm -hmm. Pies has salt in it. What God is saying is Christians, those who are following Jesus, they are God's way of seasoning the earth. We season the earth. The earth tastes better because we're here second thing salt preserves we don't really use salt very much as a preservative up until the industrial revelation though salt was a huge preservative 
Now, here's the funny thing. Salt does not prevent food from spoiling. I know some of you are like, wait a minute, I thought that was the whole point. No, no, no. It slows down the spoiling. That's the point. Uh, you, you leave food in salt and come back, you know, 100 years later, and that food's going to be spoiled. It slows down the decay. And that's part of what God does with the church. We slow down. We restrain the decay of the world into everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. We restrain that. The third thing, salt sterilizes. Ever heard of the phrase, pour salt on an open wound? Hopefully you've never done it. It hurts. It hurts a lot. It stings when you pour salt on an open wound. What is God saying with this? That, that we as followers of Christ are to heal the wounded, even if sometimes we have to sting a little. Fourth thing is, salt gives strength. They paid the Roman soldiers often in coin and in a bag of salt. In fact, if you did not give a Roman soldier his salt, uh, they would often revolt against you because they understood, as we understood, that salt produces electrolytes in us and makes us stronger. That's why athletes drink Gatorade, right? You ever look at the prime ingredient in Gatorade that's different than Kool-Aid? It's sodium. Yeah. You get a little bottle of Gatorade, that's like 15% of your total sodium intake. But it, you know, it creates strength inside your body. What God is saying is, I want to strengthen the earth by sending my followers. And then finally, number five, salt creates thirst. That's why we put salt on our pretzels. That's why we like salty potato chips, right? Uh, and of course, what's God saying with this? That God uses Christians to create a thirst for God. So that's what it means to be salty. We sterilize. We create a thirst. We give strength. We preserve. We season. Look at that right now. And I've had to look at that. I'm examining my life. Do I do that in my world? Do I, or am I so caught up in my own worries and fears that the salt has lost its saltiness and I'm just getting choked out by all my own anxieties in life? Or do I do this? Do I spread this to others? But of course, the second thing Jesus says, he also calls us to be light. What does light do? Light reveals. Light exposes. But it also guides. When you're like walking in the dark, it's nice to have a flashlight to show you where the sidewalk is, right? Now, of course, we live in a city that's lit up all the time, but go live out in places that don't have lights everywhere, and, and it's great to have a flashlight. In fact, sometimes when I'm in a new place, especially like a hotel room or something like that, I will often have this because I, I wake up. I wake up all the time, and at, at night I don't know why I just wake up. And when I wake, I sleep often on my stomach. So when I wake up, I often be like, I'll look around. You know, where am I? Who am I? What am I doing? You know, I I have that. I don't know why. I just have that. You know, and so. Especially when I'm in a hotel, you know, because I, I mean, in my own room, I look around, okay, I know where I'm at. Tanya's there, my nightstand's there, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's all familiar. Been a hotel, you know, where am I? What am I doing? Flip the light on, and all of a sudden, okay, I know where I'm at, know where I'm going, you know. Jesus is saying this if your light is going to make a difference, it has to shine on other people. Not just in your prayer closet, not just in the privacy of your car your shower all the places where you go to be alone 
Somebody must see the light for it to do any good. So if you flip over your sheet this morning, these will go by real quick. I only have three points for you this morning because we have a full morning this morning. I am asking you to stay, so I'm not going to completely exhaust you (laughs) with this message. But this message ties into what I'm going to say afterward. We need a salt and light revolution. And my vision as our pastor is to lead our church, lead all of us into a salt and light revolution. To be the salt that God is salting the earth with and to shine his light through our lives. The first point is this. God will make sure that people see the light you shine. A lot of people come up to you and say, you know, Tom, I live for God. I do these things for Jesus, but I don't think anybody's really watching. I don't think anybody really cares. I don't think it's really all that noticed. And I'm here to tell you right now, Jesus says it is in this passage. When you live for God and you shine his light, God will never, ever, ever, ever waste your obedience. God will never waste your obedience. If you obey God in something, especially if it really took sacrifice to obey it, God will not waste that obedience. Your light will be shining and your salt will be seasoning. Amen? God's primary mission on earth is to save as many people as he can. So whenever you decide to live for God and live in God's will, he will draw others to see it. Jesus didn't say, well, when they hear your great preachers, they will be salted and lit. Jesus didn't say, when they sit in your lovely sanctuaries. Jesus didn't say, when they clap for your choir. Jesus didn't say, when they read your statement of faith. He could have said all those things, but he didn't. Why? Because I think more people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. Present company excluded, of course. So, <laughs> just realize what I said. But you know what? I, do, I realize what I said. I, I, all of you enjoy this for a half hour or an hour. You wouldn't want all week of this. I hope you wouldn't. Because I'd rather see the sermon in you. See it in your life. See it in the way you live, in the ways you encourage. And you know, I do. I do. In fact, if there is one reason why I really love this church, I have the opportunity to connect with most of you, maybe in a way that not everybody does. And everybody loves to tell their pastor the praise stories, the the good things that God's doing in their life. And I walk away just going, man, I am seeing the sermon. I am seeing the salt and light, and I love it. I might even be addicted to it. I need help. (laughs) I need therapy. (laughs) I can't get enough of testimonies. (laughs) Number two, they will turn to God and praise him. Verse 16 says, they will praise your Father who is in heaven. You ever been to one of those old cathedrals? like a, a church that's made out of stone. And, and, and what does it have? What kind of glass does it have? It has stained, stained glass. And uh, there's a little boy who is sitting in church in one of these cathedrals. And, and uh, he, he looks to his mother and he says, Mom, who are the people in the window? And the mom answered, you know, 
Well, those are the saints. For those of you who, all of you really, I think, know what I'm talking about when I say that. But, but in like the, the Catholic tradition, the Lutheran tradition, Episcopal traditions, uh, you know, they, they have, you know, they have these history of these people who they've kind of sainted. And the apostles are always top on the list. You know, Saint John, Saint Peter, Saint Luke, uh, Saint um, James. And so this, 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 the stained glass has all of these saints on it. And mom says, well, those are the saints. And the little boy thought about it for a moment. He goes, mom, I know who the saints are. And she goes, who do you think they are? She goes, they're the ones who let the light in. You get it? We're the ones who let the light in. We're the ones who let the light in. Finally, number three, after they see it in you, after there's a turning to back to God, number three, they become part of the salt and light revolution that Jesus began. A few chapters later in the same book, Book of Matthew, says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he says to his disciples, the harvest, the harvest is plentiful. There's lots of people out there that want to hear about God. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He says, so ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers. We are the salt and light revolution. What is Jesus' plan for our lives? It's to be sent out into the harvest field. And what is the harvest field? Well, for us, it's, I hope I did this right, Bakersfield, right? And then this is California, and this is the world. God's very organized when it comes to salting the earth and shining the light. You know, we have our local, our regional, and the world. That's the harvest field that we've been called to. Will everybody be ready for the harvest? No. Two out of three people are, are not going to be interested. Statistics bear that out. Don't get hung up on that. Don't get hung up that two out of three people are going to go, you know, I'm really not interested in your church. I really don't want to go meet your pastor. I really don't want to talk about the Bible. Can we just talk about football? You know, I mean, it, you know, it, don't, get hung, don't get hung up on that. I don't, you know. But there will be one out of three. It'll be like, you know what? I'm, I don't want to talk about that yet, but can we talk about that later? Absolutely. When? <laughs> I press it. When? As you become salt and shine your light, people will turn to God and give him praise. Now listen to me. The world's not going to give you a medal of honor for signing up for the salt and light revolution. But you ought to join anyway. This may mean speaking up at the office. It may mean refusing to not get involved in certain holiday traditions. It may mean taking some criticism for your faith. It may mean taking an unpopular stand on social and public issues. Remember, salt stings before it cleanses. You may have to roll up your sleeves and get involved with 
hurting people. It may mean going out of your way to help a friend. There's a, a, a Native American uh, Christian leader uh, who is successfully, in fact, I, I'm really, I, I enjoy reading this man because he is trying to take Christianity from a Native American point of view and develop it and try to, to get all of the sort of mistakes and abuses that have come from, from European or, or, or Spanish missionaries, you know, kind of edit those out and just see how would have Christianity flourished in a Native American culture. And, and this was one of the things he said, is the first thing we think of as Native American Christians is how can we r- roll up our sleeves and help our fellow man or woman or family. It's, 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 that's our n- instant reaction. And that they would see by our serving them that we are, that we are representatives of Jesus on the earth. That's, that was beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, you know. And, and I love when cultures begin to develop their, their own point of view. That Christianity can have many point of views. Not many interpretations, but many point of views. And so, you know, it may mean going out of your way to help a friend. But here's the thing. When you've done your job right, when you've salted the earth and you've shined your light on the world, people won't notice you. They'll notice Jesus. Amen? Bow your heads for a moment. And repeat after me. Say, Lord Jesus, help me to be salty again. Help me to shine light and become a part of the salt and light revolution.